0: EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by BP. When it comes to reaching the Paris goals, what could one of the agreement's architects and an energy CEO have in common? A shared view that business has a key role to play.
1: The company,
2: AstraZeneca, surprisingly informed the Commission that it intends to supply considerably fewer doses in the coming weeks This new schedule is not acceptable to the European Union.
0: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, back from a short break. Because what could be better than a staycation in January in Brussels in the middle of a pandemic? And you just heard from the EU's health commissioner, Stella Kyriakides, reacting to the news that the EU is going to receive a lot less coronavirus vaccine than it expected in the first quarter of this year.
2: The European Union wants the ordered and pre-financed doses to be delivered as soon as possible. And we want our contract to be fully fulfilled.
0: Coming up, we'll discuss how we got here, looking at how the EU has pursued its vaccine strategy, what's gone wrong, what's gone right, the repercussions, and who's responsible. And later in this episode, you'll hear from the creator of a new documentary about the Brussels bubble, about what it takes to survive and thrive there, professionally and personally, and at what cost. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. A uh, warm welcome to Sarah Wheaton, our Chief Policy Correspondent. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Uh, hi to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good evening. So we are going to talk about the subject that seems to be on everyone's lips across Europe and beyond at the moment, and that is coronavirus vaccines. A big, big political fight has blown up well across Europe, particularly here in Brussels uh, this week, between AstraZeneca and the European Commission. And as chance would have it, uh, with perfect timing, Sarah and her colleague Gillian Deutsch have put together a big piece tracing the key moments in the European Commission's drive to procure vaccines from various companies and that piece will be available for you to read on politico.eu and Sarah if you can just break down some of the key points for us some of the things that you found in the course of of your reporting and maybe uh, we just kind of rewind first and ask how did we get here when did the the commission start in earnest to begin procuring vaccines and and how did they go about it?
2: Well, ironically, Europe can actually thank Donald Trump for its vaccine purchase efforts because Trump sort of confirmed people's worst fears about what Make America Great Again, uh, America First would do. And that happened in a March 2nd meeting at the White House where he had lots of pharma bigwigs. And some small-time pharma players, too. And one of them was the CEO of a little German biotech company called CureVac.
1: Thank you, Mr. President,
0: Mr. Vice President, thanks for having me here. Good afternoon. I'm Dan Manichella, CEO of CureVac. Uh, We're a clinical stage biotech company. And
2: a few weeks after this meeting, suddenly the German press exploded. It began with a report published Sunday in German newspaper
1: Die Welt, alleging that the Trump administration offered $1 billion to biotech firm CureVac, to move its COVID-19 vaccine research to the U.S.
2: and keep it, quote, only for the United States. The claim comes after CureVac's chief. And this just seemed like a horrible thing to happen to a European company. And that's when we really saw the Commission spring into action. President Ursula von der Leyen had a press conference where they basically threw money at CureVac and said, "No, this is a European company. They are going to make vaccines for Europeans."
3: Other countries tried to buy that company, show that they are the front runner. Uh, in the research important for us. It's a European company. We wanted to keep it in Europe. It wanted to stay in Europe. It was very important to give give it the necessary funding. And that has happened yesterday when we had this conversation.
2: Oh, and also because we're not as bad as the the U.S., we're not vaccine nationalists. They're also going to make vaccines for the rest of the world. And that really kicked off this, at least ambition, to secure shots for Europeans and everybody else. But there were some hiccups. Capitals didn't really trust the commission to do it. The commission didn't have a a great history of buying medical supplies. And so we saw France, Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands secure their own deal for 300 to 400 million AstraZeneca shots. Eventually, the commission convinced those four countries as well as the rest of the EU-27 to come on board. And then they started buying vaccines for everybody.
0: Right. And what were their kind of key priorities there, you know, as, as the commission, you know, went about this? And maybe mention one or two of the key people who were involved as well.
2: Sure. Well, obviously, you know, one can assume that price was a factor, as was production capacity. Um, but then there were some other things that if you look at other major countries or buying efforts, were not as big of a factor. One was liability protection. So, in the United States, in the UK, drug makers got these deals basically that said, look, we know that you're making vaccines for an emergency. You're doing this faster than ever. We really, really need these. You're taking a big risk. We're going to reduce that risk for you by basically saying you won't be held liable if a problem emerges later on with your vaccine and it causes some sort of side effect. This doesn't count for like if, if something really nefarious happened, but just if there's like a genuine thing that, you know, honest hardworking people couldn't have noticed about this vaccine going wrong. We won't hold you liable, people cannot sue you. In Europe, they were like, we are not giving you that sort of protection. Don't even ask for it. Of course, companies did ask for it and it became this huge fight. And eventually, Europe did agree to basically cover the legal costs or actually cover the costs if a court did find damages. But then that negotiation itself hinged on the price. So they said, if you're like AstraZeneca and you're producing this vaccine basically at no profit, then we'll promise to cover your damages. But if you're like Moderna, if you're like Pfizer-BioNTech and you are trying to make a profit on this, then we're not going to give you as much protection. And so that dragged out those negotiations because they had more back and forth. And this is an area where we do see kind of a key important player come in. Um, so Sandra Galina was a commission official in DG Trade, and she was seen as this person who drove a really hard bargain and got a good deal for Europe in the Mercosur trade negotiations. And I remember the day in June when the commission announced that they were pushing out their longtime health guy and putting this woman who basically had no health experience in. And it was clear that she was just going to be there to negotiate with Big Pharma. And Galena was seen as taking a pretty hard line. She did successfully get these companies to agree to give up liability protection. And she also got 27 member countries who all had different budgets, different risk tolerance. She got them all to to agree to take the same approach.
0: Right and and there does seem to be some evidence from your piece that she got pretty good prices compared to some what some others have paid as well, right? So we should see um, all of that. And then I'll do a quick bit of uh, interpreting for people outside the bubble. Uh, DG Trade, the Directorate General for Trade, and DG Santé being the one for Health inside the European Commission. So we're now at this stage, if we fast forward, where this huge row has blown up, uh, partly because, well, both of the two, if you like, main vaccine producers at the moment have said they're not going to be able to deliver what they had originally Well, it's even disputed whether they said they would deliver it, but uh, are producing less than expected or will produce less than expected, at least in the short term of the vaccine, when the whole of Europe is crying out to be vaccinated. So, you know, that has led to uh, you know a lot of political tension or tension between the European Commission, European governments and particularly AstraZeneca this week. Matt, what do you make of it? I think you had a question for Sarah as well.
4: Well, I just think that what Sarah was just describing is really the irony of this whole episode, because the EU and sort of the general population, I would say, in Europe is often accused of wasting money, of you know being this really kind of cushy organization that just gives out cash. And I think they were trying very hard here to show that they were going to do this well, they were going to stick within a tight budget. And, you know, this might have been the one time where the EU should have thrown the budget out the window and just put as much money on the table as it would have taken to, you know, get as much of this vaccine as quickly as possible. And it's just kind of almost humorous to watch because they were, you know, after these negotiations kind of Clapping one another on the back, saying, You know, oh, this is, <laughs> we really did a great job here. And now the whole thing is blowing up in their face. And I guess the real question that I have, and I think that a lot of people east of the Rhine, shall we say, have, is Is the issue really that they didn't order enough, the EU now, or the Commission, of these various vaccines? Or is it more that there's just not enough production capacity and no matter how much they had ordered, there wouldn't be enough to go around anyway. And that problem is exacerbated by the fact that, you know, many countries still do not have the logistics really sorted out of how to, you know, get the vaccine in, into people's arms.
2: Right. So we did actually see a lot of even countries that you would think have pretty good health systems, totally blow it when the vaccines first became available, like France and the Netherlands. So I do think it's fair to say that volume of vaccines purchased isn't really a fair criticism to throw at the commission. However, where we are hearing a lot of criticism that that is still being litigated, let's say, is that This push for companies to keep liability and to to some extent, the price discussion, it just dragged out the negotiations. And companies will tell you this meant that they were not certain of how many vaccines they were actually going to need to produce. And so they were not ramping up production as quickly as they could. We did hear the AstraZeneca CEO, uh, Pascal Soriot, just say that the UK made an agreement three months earlier and so they started ramping up production in the UK three months earlier, and that gave them three months to iron out all the kinks. So we're still trying to find out what's going on with that. And the other thing that we're we're hearing now from the commission, they're not saying this explicitly, but the health commissioner, Stella Kirikidis, is basically strongly implying that the companies that AstraZeneca is selling vaccines made in Europe they're selling them to others first and she just said uh, earlier on the day that we're recording you know the rules at the butcher shop of first come first serve don't apply to vaccines so the EU does seem to be sensitive to the idea that maybe because they didn't sign on the dotted line fast enough that's why they're not getting what they ordered
4: but didn't they also just not put enough money on the table
2: yeah it's kind of it's kind of a chicken and egg issue because paying a higher price would have just closed down the negotiations much more quickly. And so they, they could have ramped up, you know, on the other hand, the price differences, you can argue, okay, the price differences are not that big. And so the EU should have just paid them. You can also argue the price differences are not that big. And so it shouldn't make that much of a difference for, for pharma. So another point that I think is worth making is some of these problems were baked in the cake. So, Europe is seen as a much worse place to do business by the pharmaceutical industry, in part because uh, they tend to drive a harder bargain on prices. So there's more inclination to focus on the U.S. market, focus on markets that are, are going to return pharma's investment more quickly. Um, also, vaccine hesitancy is higher in Europe. That's one of the reasons that the commission took such a hard line on liability, because if there were headlines saying that we're just letting pharma off the hook for problems, that's really going to fuel vaccine hesitancy. At the same time that vaccine hesitancy has been happening for a long time, companies have been closing vaccine plants. And so then when it, when they were saying, OK, suddenly we need to make a lot of vaccines in Europe, well, that kind of longstanding capacity wasn't there.
0: Right. And just to um, pick up on one of the points you made there, Sarah. As a result of this suspicion from the Commission, which is not quite being said openly, but you don't have to, you know, read very hard between the lines to see that it's there, is this idea that indeed uh, vaccines produced in Europe or vaccines that should be going to Europe are going elsewhere. And so the Commission now is talking about some kind of measure, depends exactly uh, who you talk to, how they phrase it, but some kind of either export transparency measure or perhaps even something a bit stronger to kind of keep track and possibly curb that movement if it exists of vaccines going in the wrong direction, as the European Union would, would see it. And I think that plays into a point you wanted to raise here, Reem, about the potential tensions here, both within the EU and with uh, one of its near neighbours?
1: So I have actually sort of a question and that goes into that, which is, over the past two weeks, we've heard from the major vaccine producers, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, that the supply of vaccines to the European Union is going to be affected and stalled and delayed they are not having the same issues with supplying the US or the UK. So, is that because, you know, the US and the UK ramped up production capacity way ahead of the EU, even though I'd been hearing from French officials for months that production capacity was going to be where the game is really played in Europe? So, that's one question. And I think that sort of leads into. As soon as I started hearing about this the thing that it, that came to mind is that this is a political time bomb for the EU because what is on the line right now is why is this european framework why was it the right decision so politicians have been adamant those who do believe that it was that it this was the right thing to do and going it alone doesn't work except they're kind of caught with their pants down because literally right across the channel, you have the UK that just Brexited to go it alone. And it is showing that actually this is working for it. The taking back control has helped it get its vaccines quicker and get its population vaccinated much faster. So what is worrying is that Right now, we are not seeing anyone on the European political level, whether it's in the Commission or the member states, come out and give a really full-throated explanation and defense of why this European framework was actually the right way to go. Right now, what we're seeing is that the countries that went it alone and put all the money on the table and understood that this was a race, it was a sprint at the beginning, not just a marathon, are actually ahead right now.
0: Sarah, lots for you to unpack there.
1: Yes,
2: yes, quite a lot. So one thing that I think hasn't been noticed here is that when the US rollout first started happening, there were also some production shortfalls, especially with Pfizer. But a lot of those production problems played out while Europe was still waiting for these things to be approved. As far as the political argument for this joint European effort, which is a huge existential question that you've brought up, Reem. If you're Germany, and we have heard Germany complain quite a lot about this, you could have bought your own vaccines. You funded the development of some of these vaccines. Um, you have a super strong regulatory system and tons of money to buy vaccines for your citizens. If you are Croatia, if you're Portugal, if you're Bulgaria... You're still a big fan of this effort. And the really remarkable thing about this is that you had all EU27 be able to have access to potentially seven different vaccines all at the same time. We've never seen anything like that sort of level of equality uh, happen in the European Union.
1: But here's the thing. Sorry. This is theoretically, it's a beautiful concept. Of course, you hear that and you're like, wow, this is a feat. But in practice, what we're seeing is that, well, it's not working out so well, whereas the UK model seems to be performing. Maybe this is just a snapshot right now, you know, with a vaccination drive. But you can just feel the political lightning rod that this is already becoming as an issue.
4: Yeah, but I think it, I think it's a fair point is that it depends where you are, right? right? I mean, if you're in a, a rich western european country like France or Germany or uh, even Belgium, you might have some skepticism about the efficacy of of this effort, but in a lot of these other countries if you're sitting in Hungary or Slovakia, I mean, I think the Hungarians are Buying the Russian uh, yeah. vaccines, well, uh, but you know, I think there's a, a lot of concern about what might have happened had the EU not stepped in here.
1: I guess the question is could it have done it better?
4: Yeah,
0: At all where you stand is where you sit, right? I mean that's uh, that's a lot of what this is.
1: It's interesting that Matt today is the one who's sort of defending the EU framework. I never thought I'd hear this. <laughs> no,
4: it feels like people have swapped brains. Well, I mean, today. I'm not really I, I'm just saying I'm being a realist, you know.
1: Yes, of course. Everything you just said is very valid and obviously are the sort of positives of this of this approach. But why did it also have to be so slow? And why did it have to fall short on these very important other aspects? I think that is going to be... Well, that is
0: the danger, right? That, that, that the solidarity, what's intended to be something that strengthens solidarity, actually does the reverse. Because people say, if this is the price of solidarity, I'm not so sure
4: we want to exactly. pay. Exactly. Right, that's the... That's the danger. I would just say that, you know, ultimately this is really about leadership. And I think it shows a failure of leadership at the very top of the European Commission that Ursula von der Leyen hasn't been able to explain what happened here. Nobody knows really or understands why this happened, where the problems were. From the very beginning, this entire effort has been all about show and at the end of the day, you know, she's going to have to answer these very difficult questions.
0: Yeah, well, that's for sure. And I think maybe that's a note to, to end it on. But we'll come back in a moment and do our recommendations, our, uh, our panel picks for uh, getting through lockdown. But for now, Reem, Sarah, and Matt, thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: A message
0: from BP. When it comes to reaching the Paris goals, what could one of the agreement's architects and an energy CEO have in common? A shared view that business has a key role to play. And now to our feature interview, which we're going to do a bit differently this week to tell the story of our guest and also the project she's working on. That means diving deep into the Brussels bubble. We often talk about the policies being debated, the decisions being made in and around the EU quarter. But today we're talking about the people who make it tick and what makes them tick, what keeps them going.
3: Through my main characters, I hope to show the human face behind Brussels. The face of the women's devotion as well as the inner struggles that come along with living this intense work rhythm in the EU bubble. How to listen to an inner voice when this almost addictive European reality shapes you and absorbs you? And is it the women who choose this work routine or does the work routine impose itself?
0: Nadine van Loon is a filmmaker from the Netherlands. For the past three years, she's been filming three women working in the EU bubble, hoping to spark a conversation about what it takes to survive and thrive in Brussels, both professionally and personally. It's a question van Loon herself struggled with, having spent parts of her own career inside the bubble, as she told me when we spoke earlier this week.
3: In- 2000, for my first job, I moved to um, Brussels uh, as a political assistant uh, in the European Parliament. And uh, I, I left after two years and I entered the Foreign Service. And uh, in the five years afterwards, I regularly traveled to Brussels uh, as an EU diplomat for EU meetings uh, on a monthly basis. But
0: eventually that took its toll.
3: It was a time I, w- I just came back to work and I was still, still had a little kid and, um, and I was in a work environment. That was, I think, uh, demanding. But um, And I, in the end, I, I kept on doing all the things in private life, feeling this big responsibility for the kids, but also for the work. And, and at a certain point, it, it snapped. I, I wasn't sleeping anymore. So it was my body really showing that this is I couldn't go on.
0: Van Loon left the Foreign Service and decided to take a different path as a journalist and a filmmaker. And she eventually made her way back to Brussels, but this time as an observer, looking in on the bubble from the outside. Uh,
3: so I, w- I had been out of that, that world of policymaking, and then I, I returned to Brussels, and I had three three kids, three young boys, and uh, was walking around there, and I, I reconnected with old friends who had stayed in Brussels, and uh, I really loved their, their mindset, and I felt at home, and in a way there was this melancholic feeling that got hold of me, and I thought, oh, how... What impact does it have, have on your life when you stay here in Brussels and you're molded by this uh, European uh, quarter and, and life there? And I saw a lot of people, uh, they were in a way struggling also with their home countries. And, and I, so I was fascinated by that. And also I saw all these women who were in interesting careers and they seemed to have found meaning in their careers. And uh, so I started thinking of a film idea and that's how Notes from Brussels started.
0: So she homed in on three characters to tell her story.
3: So there's um, Anne-Cécile. She is a French political assistant in the European Parliament. And when I started filming her, she, she had just arrived. And so she represents the story of someone who is a newcomer. And my curiosity of what will happen when you enter that system. Then there is Joanna. She was 42 when I started filming her and she is um, Polish and she was born under communism and she dreamt of Europe as a child. And then uh, right after Poland joined the EU, she moved to Brussels uh, and she became a well-known trade uh, reporter. And then there's the German top EU official, Beate. And when I started filming her, she was uh, 22 years in an EU career. And for me, she really represents like how did this career shape her. And when I met her, I discovered that she had recently been married uh, to the love of her life that she left behind in Berlin just before she moved to uh, Brussels. And I was really intrigued by that story. So she somehow they met again after 20 years and she had been shaped by the EU bubble. And I wondered how, how did that go and were there regrets and how did they deal with that? Uh, the idea that they could have been together, but they weren't and now they are. And then in the film, she is she is now doing really well, but she was struggling with the intense work rhythm. She just started a job as a director of migration and asylum budgets, uh, and it was a huge workload. And uh, so I was observing how she was handling that.
0: But even though the central figures in her story are women, Van Loon says there are many things men in the bubble can relate to as well, like feeling torn over whether to stay in Brussels or move back home.
3: When I arrived back in Brussels, I it was almost like seeing all these souls walking around and they had their thoughts of about their home countries, like, when should I return? Should I return or not? And they all, a lot of them stay in Brussels, so they have to deal with that. And there's also this, this tension of the bad image Brussels has. So when they go home, they hear all these things, like, oh, Brussels this and the EU that, and and they have to learn to deal with that. In the beginning of the film, I was very much focusing on, on that, but then I Discovered that they all find their way in dealing with that, um, but not with dealing with their the longing for going home and going to their roots. And that is the story of Joanna in the film. Really represents that part of Brussels t- to me because she, she was, she is still always thinking when when should we return to to Poland? But then her story is the story of Europe and. Now, with with her country drifting away from her, the European ideals that brought her to Brussels, uh, so that's why I picked her her story to tell.
0: And then there's the long hours
3: for Anne Cécile. As the the young political assistant, she was on her phone all the time. So either either she was walking around with with visitor groups and uh, answering their questions, feeling responsible. And then she also was working on legislation and preparing the work for her high-profile MEP she was working for. And the the days just went on and she felt so responsible and she wasn't taking breaks. So that was her way, in a way, to adapt is just denying certain other longings, maybe. Uh, Now she has changed a lot. So that's beautiful to see. The same for for Beata. she was also struggling a bit, and uh, her body was protesting. And I was fascinated how she, she continued. And I think in a way that that's the reality that a lot of people they take it for granted. It's it's, it's just self evident this work rhythm, and it's difficult to change. But I in the film I was questioning a little bit this reality because I was in a very different place. You know, even if you're filming, you're observing, you're very much in the moment, but and you see how they're. Mind is taken by all these uh, decisions that you have to make, all these WhatsApp messages that continue coming, all these emails, uh, long days.
1: Anne, what are you doing here still? My God.
3: So what are you doing here?
0: (laughs) Van Loon is hoping to finish her documentary in the coming months.
3: I've launched this crowdfunding campaign to be able to finance uh, a very good editor and post-production house because I have most of the footage, but I still need to raise another 3000 euros to be able to finance that. And the crowdfunding campaign runs until uh, the morning of five February. So um, please go to um, my website. cinecrowd.com slash notes dash from dash Brussels. And then we hope uh, that, yeah, if, if that goes well, uh, I will start working with the editor and we plan to have the film ready uh, half April, and then we are going to organise screenings in Brussels uh, and uh, and I will start submitting the film to, to film festivals and, and hopefully there can be some kind of impact programme starting in Brussels, but then also other European capitals that uh, people can watch the movie and then we can have a discussion on it, on the future of work.
0: And she hopes the film will get employers and employees in the EU bubble thinking and talking about what it takes for people to succeed in Brussels and what it can take out of them too.
3: When I was looking for my candidates, I wanted to feel that they really cared about, Euro- about Europe. And and I noticed that it was always in the back of their mind. And, and I think when you feel that great passion for your job, it's even more difficult to, to set your boundaries. Um, I get really angry, but that's just very personal when I hear managers that are uh, whatsapping their staff in the evenings and they expect them to respond and I think oh my god we all need to take some time for ourselves and and stop at the end of the day and so yeah I would call upon managers to also end their days and make sure that their staff can do their own things in the evening and then uh, that yeah that's important.
0: Okay, and Reem and Sarah and Matt are back with us now briefly to do some recommendations, listening, streaming, reading, whatever it takes to get you through lockdown. I am going to start this week and I am going to recommend Lupin or Lupin, as I'm guessing people are probably calling in the UK and the US, uh, the Netflix uh, series about a kind of thief who's a good guy. You know, which harks back to um, some French literature from some time ago. So it's a little bit like uh, the reboot of Sherlock Holmes that the BBC did recently. I've really enjoyed it. So there, that's uh, that's my tip. Uh, you know
1: what? I'm actually going to jump in, and I'm going to recommend for once something that has to do with the European Commission and the European Council. Someone, a French television, a production house, actually uh, decided to make the European Council. Interesting, and shoot a documentary about it. And so La Chaîne Parlementaire, which is a, actually a, a public uh, service of obviously uh, French TV, has aired this two-part documentary this week. And I really think it's very interesting. And you also get to see some of our political colleagues. So that's always uh, always great, with a lot of great insight on really what goes on in all of these sort of all-nighter negotiations that have so much impact on the lives of normal Europeans without them even realizing it.
0: Okay, sounds good. I'm impressed that you've watched that already. I I will watch it, but I haven't yet. Sarah, what's yours?
1: Well, it's a
2: little taste of Brussels bubble life pre-COVID. So... There's this group of of Anglophone kids who used to do this comedy night once or twice a month at bars in the European Quarter. And obviously, we cannot go and do that in person anymore. And so they've actually started doing Zoom comedy nights. And it's just like amateur comedians doing their stand-up routines from their rooms the first time I watched it, I have to admit, I had very low expectations, but it really exceeded them. Sure. And uh, yeah, I think you have to like friend some guy on Facebook to get invited, but um, I'll right. try to... See if
4: you can get us an in there. Matt, what's your uh, recommendation? Uh, I might be revealing my age with this one. But this is a film that I saw as a fairly young man. And today is actually the 76th anniversary of the liberation of... Auschwitz and it is a week where many people in Europe are reflecting on that time for various reasons and this is actually a French film by the director Louis Malle it's an autobiographical uh, film called Au les enfants and it is about uh, his time in a boarding school during the uh, Nazi period and it remains after all these years a very poignant look at that
1: It's a great film.
0: Okay, noted. Uh, Nothing if not uh, varied in our recommendations this week. So uh, Reem, Sarah and Matt, thanks very much. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also send us feedback and ideas, whether you're an old or new listener. The email is podcast at politico.eu. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, be sure also to check out the first episode of our new UK podcast, Westminster Insider. You can find it in all the usual podcast places and that first episode will be there by Friday morning. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening.